The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Ask God's blessing. Father, would you make this book live to me? And then would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my blessed Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. And return to your feet briefly, please. We return to our verse by verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We continue in chapter 4. We're reading verse 1 down through verse 6. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So those of you who have been with us all these last few weeks, 
you're very much aware of the fact that we are focusing on, because the Apostle Paul is focusing on, the question of unity within the church. Specifically, this unity that God, by the work of His Spirit, has given to us. It's a gift. We don't create it. This bond of peace that He has worked out by the working of His Holy Spirit that He has granted to us, this word unity, and we've focused in on the reality that the root word there is one. It is a oneness. This is not a casual bond. This is not a bond of convenience. This isn't just some like-minded people that have decided to do life together. There's a singularity here. There's a oneness. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us then that coming right off the heels of speaking to us about the oneness that we as the church of Christ Jesus are meant to enjoy, he immediately launches into a series of statements of seven ones. So that verses four through six, they almost serve to us as a bit of a confessional statement. I told you that Paul did not follow his normal writing pattern. You know, his normal pattern is a conjunction of some sort of therefore or a for or a because or a so then. Some type of connecting statement to make clear to us how verses four and six, four through six, connect everything that came before. But he, he abandoned that pattern here. Those words that you read there, there is, it was an addition by the translators, and they did well to make that addition. The purpose there is to make clear that we haven't left the indicatives, the statements of absolute truth completely behind. This is just a statement of things that just are. There is one body, whether you like it or not. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. These are statements of truth, not questions, not requests, not commandments. These are the indicatives. And so as we looked last week, we discovered that what Paul has done is he has broken these ones, these seven statements of one. He has broken them out into two groups of three and then one standalone one that's connected by four alls there in verse six. And if you follow this pattern through and you recognize the way in which it's divided up, you very quickly come to realize that each one of these statements is centered around one of the members of the Godhead. You see that first set of three ones, one body, one spirit, one hope. You see one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then, of course, wrapping it all up in the end, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So each one of these verses that we find here, verses four, five, and six, each one of them tell us something about how this triune God relates to the church. Not only does it tell us something about how each person in this blessed Holy Trinity relates to the church, but it also tells us something about how this relationship builds for us and brings us into this unity. This is the same unity that we found Christ Jesus praying about in that upper room on the night when he was betrayed in John 17. That oneness, may they be one, Father, even as we are one. May their unity be a testament and a testimony that you have sent me, Father. May the way in which they live their lives lend a particular beauty, an adornment to the gospel that they proclaim. Beloved, have you come to recognize yet 
There's a whole lot at stake in our oneness. It's not just the difference between a bad church and a good church. It's not just the difference between an enjoyable church and a heavy church. It's a difference between the true church and a false church. This oneness that Christ Jesus has asked the Father on our behalf and he is granting us in real time. And what is the hope that we have in this? Because it's a gift from God and not a thing that we are meant to create. How then are we to walk out this eagerness that he's called us to? He said that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. What does this eagerness look like? Where must we look? He tells us to get our eyes on heaven. Get your eyes off of yourself and on to God, off of the things that are seen, because the things that are seen are going to be real frustrating and real confusing and real dissatisfying. And you can't trust your own eyes and you can't trust your own heart and you can't trust your own ideas, but you can trust the word of God. So he says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Get your gaze fixed on heaven and there you will find this oneness. There you will enjoy this unity. So where does he take us to? Theology proper. You see, the world likes to tell us that doctrine divides. Don't talk about theology. Doctrine divides. When in reality, that's the only place we'll find true oneness. This true unity that we are meant to hold on to and zealously pursue and be eager to maintain, it's found there. Oh, doctrine may in some sense divide because doctrine will prune. And it will cull. And it will shake loose. And it will make clear those who may well have been baptized into the small C local church, but who do not belong to the big C universal church. Those who make all the professions and sing all the songs and can account for all the scripture, and yet they have never found themselves in Christ Jesus. So yes, this doctrine may divide. It may divide the true saints of God from those who are deceived. It may divide the church of Christ Jesus from the world. Is that not what the word of God is meant to do? Sharper than a double-edged sword? Piercing to the innermost parts, making the, the finest of divisions within the body. Proving out those who have left from us because they were never of us. So we get our eyes fixed on him, knowing that that is the only true grounding. This is the nature and the character of this great supernatural oneness this is the way we come to enjoy this bond of peace and so where does Paul begin he begins because he's dealing with the doctrine of the church he begins with that person of the blessed holy spirit he talks about the fact that we are one body this this is as I've said over and over again this is a statement to a local gathered congregation just like this one but it's something much greater than this this one body, it is comprised of every single believer that has ever or will ever live. That we are of one body even now with the saints who have already died and are around the throne today worshiping in heaven. We are one body. Something that is active and living and vital and growing. We're not just any old body though. We're the body of Christ Jesus that he is our head and we are his body. We find our direction and our life and our guidance all from him, our head. 
And that this body, this body of Christ, it finds not only its direction from the head, but its animating force and this, this unifying power and the lifeblood that flows through it. It comes from this one spirit, that same spirit that was in Christ Jesus, empowering him throughout his earthly ministry. That that same spirit indwells each true believer and therefore it indwells the whole of the church. This bond that keeps us together even when we're not physically together. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. But in addition to this, because as Paul says in the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit, what is he? He's the down payment. He's the guarantee. He's the seal of a greater promise to come. And so therefore, these people who all have within us the same spirit, we all have within us the same hope. The infinite, immeasurable blessings of God stored up for us in heavenly places secure we received this down payment, and therefore, in light of this, we have one hope. So now this morning, we move together to that next section of three ones. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just to give you a lay of the land so that you don't panic when you look up and it is nearly 1030 and we're still on one Lord. That's as far as we're getting today. You're not surprised by that. He says here that there is one Lord. Kurios is the word in Greek. And by my count, there's something like 713 times that this word is used in the New Testament. Now, 15 of those times, as best I can tell, it's just used synonymous with the word sir. Like a show of respect. Do you remember the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 as he says to Paul and Silas, sirs, that's the same word, kurios. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There, there's another 50 or so times when this same word is used to mean something like a master or an owner. It's a statement of authority. I preached to the children on Monday morning here in chapel in our, our telos, our school children. And if you find yourself with nothing to do on a Monday morning and you just haven't had enough of our preaching and our worship together, I would encourage you to just slip in the back of our sanctuary here and worship with these children. You will be blessed. You will be challenged as well. But we were considering together as a group, Ephesians 6, verse 5. See, they're getting the advanced copy. They're way further ahead of us on Sunday mornings. But we're in Ephesians 6 on, sun, on Monday morning, and we considered Ephesians 6, 5, where we read these words, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. That's the same word, kurios. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. So it can mean just a show of respect like sir. It can mean a show of authority like a master. But far more often than that, it's translated Lord. Now again, sometimes Lord doesn't mean Lord. Sometimes Lord isn't capitalized. Sometimes it's lowercase l. We read in 1 Peter 3, 6 that Sarah obeyed Abraham and she called him Lord. Probably not a practice you wives want to get into, and I'm understanding of that. Probably pretty creepy if you did. But in order to fully appreciate, I think, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, 5, I think it's helpful for us to go all the way back to the Old Testament. By my calculation, that English word, Lord, it is found some 7,299 times. And no, I didn't count. Some software did the work for me. 
But in the ESV translation of the Bible, you go to the Old Testament, you find the word Lord more than 7,000 times. And when you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll find that there's a number of different Hebrew words that the Greeks just translate as kurios. Are you traveling with me? Are you tracking with me? 657 of those times, you'll find capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Have you ever noticed this? You read your Old Testament, and sometimes it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That is the word Adonai. It, it is a statement of Lord or Master. It speaks to the, to the sovereignty or the rule or the authority of someone. Again, sometimes it's an earthly king. We read about Saul when he recognized David's kindness towards him and not taking his life. 1 Samuel 26, verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David says, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in your hands? It can also be used of heavenly rulers. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. That's the word Adonai. That's the word Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. But far more often than that, the vast majority, like 90% of the times, when you find the word Lord in the Old Testament, it will be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name of God. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, some men have sought to make this clear. There's, there's a fairly new English translation of the Bible called the Legacy Standard Bible. And if you read that Bible, they take the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and they just translate it as Yahweh to make clear the difference between Yahweh and Adonai and its usage in the Old Testament. But what, what is this? Yahweh, what does it point to? What does it mean? Well, it's the divine name, that name that was first revealed to Moses from God there at the burning bush. It is I am I am who I am now you people know that this name this is much more than just an identifying mark this is much more than just a way for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to separate himself out from all the gods of Egypt there's, there's much more wrapped up in this this Yahweh I am it's a statement of his very essence his incomparable, his unparalleled, his utterly unique nature as God. He is the, the omnipotent one. This is the one whose power knows no end. His arms are never too short. He never needs to grunt. He never has desire to do something, yet finds himself lacking the strength or the ability. He's the omniscient one. The one with all knowledge and all wisdom, never learning anything, never forgetting anything, never remembering anything. In one singular act, always knowing all things at all times. He is the immutable one. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the impassable one. He cannot suffer. He is never acted upon. He is never responding. He is sovereignly providentially in control of all things at all times. He is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. There was never a time when Yahweh the Lord was not. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is self-satisfied. He needs nothing. He needs no one. He looks to us. If I was hungry, I would not tell you. 
All the gold, all the silver, all the cattle on a thousand hills, it is all mine. This name, Yahweh, it is much more than just a name. It's much more than just a moniker. It's much more than just an identifying mark. It points to the infinite nature of all his perfections. Carrying with it much more weight and glory than you could ever imagine. He says, I am who I am and I have always been the I am. I cannot be compared to any other. All human analogies and all thoughts and all pictures and all shadows and all things that you can conjure in your mind about me, they will all fall infinitely short. Have you ever wondered, at least in part, why we're commanded against making images of the invisible God? Because everything you make will be infinitely short. He says, this is who I am. I am. I am the one to whom the seraphim surrounding the throne in Isaiah 6 cried out. They offered this earth-shaking, this earth-shaking worship to me as they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I am that I am. I am the holy, holy, holy God. Holy, not just meaning utterly pure and unstained by sin and untouched by corruption. Holy, holy, holy as in separate and transcendent and set apart and above and beyond and unlike anything in all creation. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am Lord. Is it any wonder then that that name carries such majesty? You look to Psalm 8 and you find, O Lord, our Lord. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Lord, the name so precious, so powerful that we are commanded against treating it lightly. Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You will not treat my name lightly. So much so that the Jewish people were fearful to even say his name, lest they mispronounce it. You would find these God fears, these men who trembled, misguided in their attempts, I would imagine, not truly understanding that to take God's name in vain is not a faulty utterance of the lips, it's a faulty desire and picture in the heart. But yet still, with an admirable desire not to mistake or mistreat the word of God, you would find them speaking to each other about the name, the name in reference to their God, the Lord, Yahweh, the name deserving of all our blessing and all our honor and all our praise. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 66, shout to the Lord, O God, excuse me, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. Psalm 72, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Psalm 103, blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When is a name not a name? When the name is Yahweh. I am who I am. A name that can never belong to any other. What is the most basic of Hebrew confessions? The Shema. What is it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He'll go on to say in that same chapter, Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is Yahweh the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am who I am, and there is no other. Now feel the weight of all that. The exclusivity of all that. Then listen to Paul's words and be amazed. Philippians 3, verse 5, speaking of humility, he speaks of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is the name above every other name. This is the name at which every knee shall bow. This is the name that shall be on every single tongue. Jesus Christ is is Lord. There is one master, there is one maker, there is one sovereign, there is one authority, there is one Adonai, there is one God, there is one Yahweh, there is one Lord. From all eternity, there has only ever been one Lord, the Lord of glory before the foundation of the world. And yet that second member of the blessed Holy Trinity, the divine Lagos, the eternal word, the uncreated son of God in humility and condescension. He stepped down into time and space and his own creation. Is that not the word that Carrie read to us earlier? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is that one Lord. He didn't become the Lord, he is the Lord. What was the news from the angels to the shepherds on the night when our Lord and Savior was born? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. The Lord, yet in his coming, taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, all that it means to be man, save and accept sin, never ceasing to be what he has always been, and yet taking upon himself all that it means to be in the flesh, forever joining together in one divine person, the fullness of God and the fullness of man, the Theanthropos, the God-man, Christ Jesus, our Lord, stooping down in all weakness and human limitation, 
Submitting himself fully to the Father, entrusting himself fully to the Holy Spirit, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that not what the scriptures tell us? Therefore, the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Lord, he has been highly exalted. What did Paul say in the first chapter of Ephesians? By the immeasurable greatness of God's power, he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. The Son of God, the eternal Lord of glory, he came from heaven to earth. Submitting himself fully, humbling himself unbelievably, taking upon himself all that it means to be man, that he might then return to his rightful place and take us with him. He is now the God man. Reigning and ruling and sovereignly ordering all of creation, recovering everything that Adam lost in the garden. God made Adam to have authority and dominion over all creation. And instead, Adam sided with the serpent. He bowed before the serpent as Lord. So he sends his son, Christ Jesus, to this rebellious people to take that flesh upon himself, to do what man was meant to do so that the God-man, Christ Jesus, is Lord. And today he reigns. There is one Lord. And God has commanded every man, everywhere, at every time. He's not issuing some type of a meek invitation. This isn't a request. This is a command. Every man in every place at every time is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I got news for you. Every man in every place at every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No man robs God of his glory. You will confess Jesus Christ as Lord in joy and salvation today or under the boot of his wrath in eternity. But in the end, God gets his glory and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is that one Lord. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name, the name, the name. Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The fundamental gospel truth, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only Lord by nature, but Lord by redemption. He has purchased us at a price. He has bought us with his blood. There is one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. After the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that very foundational moment in the church is we see men, you talk about a picture of unity. Everything that was, everything that was undone, the chaos that was created at the Tower of Babel as men did not obey and honor God, but in, instead chose to gather together to try to build a monument to themselves. They kept their eye on the earthly things instead of fixing their gaze on heaven. And as the Holy Spirit comes there on the day of Pentecost and reordering things in this new creation, this people called the church. 
We see this great picture as Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene and visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians all hearing the word in their own tongue. But Paul says there, excuse me, Peter says there in Acts 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 3,000 would come to repentant faith on that day by the work of the Holy Spirit. But how many more would walk away saying, I will not bow to this Lord. Oh, they'll bow in the end. There is one Lord. It was after the resurrection, John 20, verse 28, where Thomas sees him and he answers, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Beloved, that's us. Have not seen with the physical eyes, but he has enlightened the eyes of our heart by the working of his spirit that we confess. You can make a robot confess that Jesus is Lord, but you can't make him believe it. You can't make him place the hope of his eternity upon it. You can't make him honor him and bless him and worship him as Lord. Only the spirit of God can do that. And we are those people. The Spirit of God has come, and we profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we do it to the glory of God. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. That is our song. The Lord reigns. There is one Lord. What does that reality have to do with us? Individually, yes, it means salvation. But what does it have to do with the church? How do we find unity in the fact that there is this one Lord? Well, firstly, because each man does not get, therefore, to choose for himself or create to his own liking his own Lord. Therefore, we must take great care to make sure that the one that we're proclaiming is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's actually the Lord. He's actually the one who exists and has existed from eternity past. I, I remind you of. Maybe the most well-attended worship service in the history of the world there at the, Mount, the base of Mount Sinai is the Hebrew people gathered together by the millions demanding a golden calf, demanding a God like others had that they could see and touch with their own hands. And I remind you that Aaron, the priest, he held up that golden calf and what did he say to them? Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Tomorrow will be a fast to Yahweh. You can claim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. You can claim Yahweh as your God and worship a golden calf. Worship something that has been the making of your own hands or the formulations of your own mind. So there is one Lord. But I pray you see not just the threat in this, but the blessing in this. That this one Lord does not share his throne with others. There is not many Lord and we're trying to seek out and worship the top Lord. There is one Lord, the triumphant King. Christus Victor, our triumphant Savior, there is one Lord, and we don't need to worry that his reign is going to be cut short before we receive the glory, before we step into the honor and the immortality that is promised to us. 
Nor do we need to fear that some portion, that there's any portion of this vast universe, this entire cosmos that is outside of his dominion. What did he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The very basis, the foundation, the therefore, for everything that we've been called to do as a people, it is grounded on that truth. All authority in heaven and earth. All means all. We can't live like cowards as if there were places in the universe that don't belong to him. There's one Lord and this one Lord reigns over all things, over all the universe. This one Lord reigns even over those who reject his claims, even over those who mock his name. He is not merely Lord over the church. He is Lord over the entire universe. There is one Lord. There was no election. We didn't get a vote. He didn't ask permission. He doesn't need your endorsement. He's not stopped by some piece of paper that calls something like the First Amendment that people then twist to say, well, there's no place for God here. We didn't vote for this. You didn't get a vote. He's Lord. There's one Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's one Lord. The kings of the earth can gather and protest. They can take up arms. They can plan a coup. And Psalm 9 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. There's a place for godly sarcasm. He laughs when the kings and the nations and the armies gather together and say, we don't submit to you as Lord. But again, I ask you to see the hope in this. There is one Lord and he is our Lord. What a cocky thing to say. But would you say it? There is one Lord, and he is our Lord, and that Lord is working all things for our good. He is Lord of the entire cosmos, and he's ordering it all, and he's providentially moving it all, and he's sovereignly overseeing it all for our good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's our one hope. But surely you see how that unifies us as a people. We're not each here worshiping the gods of our own imagination. We're each here gathered under the banner of one Lord. But number two, we must take great care because there's this one Lord that we don't try to parcel him out or divide him up. Taking this one Lord and moving him into parts, taking the pieces that we like like a buffet and rejecting the rest. What does Paul ask? Is Christ divided? Can Christ be divided? There are many, of course, who take this one Lord and they say, well, I will take him as a great man and I will take him as a magnificent teacher. I will even take him as a man who worked many mighty works, but then they reject all his unique claims as God. They'll look at all those signs and all those wonders and all those proofs that gave evidence to his claim that he is Yahweh, that he is I am. They take the pieces that make them comfortable. They take the pieces that affirm their sin. They take the pieces that they can put in a nice little box and put up on a shelf to be brought back out whenever they need a little bit of help. But you remember the Advent story. You remember all those weeks that we came together and what was the constant question that we asked of ourselves? Why must the Redeemer be fully God and fully man? And we stared in amazement and we worshiped with wonder the idea. It's a great mystery, not a thing that man can ever comprehend. 
But we stood in a place like this and we beheld the one who is and has always been Lord. As he condescended to become fully man. We don't get to pick and choose. There is one Lord. He cannot be divided, not in our minds, not in our teaching. We cannot be those people who claim Jesus Christ is my Savior, but not yet my Lord. I receive his redemption, but I'm going to go my own way from there on out. You cannot have Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord. You will have all of Christ or you will have none of Christ. How, how can I know then? How can I know that I'm not trying to parcel up and divide out Christ Jesus? How can I know that I'm bowing before him as both Christ and God and Savior and Lord? Well, he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father in heaven. Incredulously, he asks another time, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? I don't think you know what that word means, Lord. The idea of calling Jesus Lord and then not obeying him as your master. Again, not only as the creator of the heavens and the earth, but the one who has purchased you, who has ransomed you from death. The one who has rescued you from slavery by the most precious thing in all the universe, his own blood. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. This one who is Lord by nature and Lord by work. It is completely incongruent, inconceivable, impossible. You got any other eyes? To think that this one would not be your Lord and master. That you would not bow before him and utter an absolute unquestioned obedience. And this one Lord says, I don't care about the words that come out of your mouth if they don't match the reality of your heart. Sing all the songs you want. Make all the confessions you believe. Stand and sign all the covenants you want. But the reality is, if it doesn't match what's in your heart, if you do not bow to me as Lord, if you do not obey me from a joyful heart, you prove yourself to be deceived and damned and a liar. There is one Lord. He is Lord over all. Not only all the cosmos, but every single area of your life. He is Lord of your marriage. He is Lord of your sex life. He is Lord of your money. He is Lord of your internet habits. He is Lord over your work. He is Lord over your rec recreation. He is Lord over your health. He is Lord over this church. He is Lord over your language. He is Lord over how you drive. He is Lord over how you treat your neighbor. He is Lord over how you treat your body. He is Lord over what you eat. He is Lord over what you drink. He is Lord over every single area of your life. We build this false dichotomy between the holy and the secular. No, all of life is not just us gathered in a room singing songs of praise. He has created us spiritual beings with physical bodies and we go and enjoy a very physical world. And I praise God for this. I praise God that the promise of eternity isn't some ethereal floaty place for all eternity, but it's a new heavens and a new earth where we eat and we drink and we run and we explore and we worship. And we have a foretaste of it right now so that we can do all those things and they can rightly be called worship to the glory of God. There is one Lord. He is one Lord over all these areas of your life. So you must obey. You must honor him and all of it. 
as we desire to give ourselves over to this, as we honor him with every single area of our life, we find the way that this body just continues to take form and it continues to represent our head and it continues to outdo one another in showing honor. There's one Lord. Therefore, we cannot ever bow to another. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Beloved, do you hear the exclusivity of this claim? There is one Lord. There is nothing more restrictive. There is nothing more absolute. There is nothing more intolerant than the word or the number one. This is the basis for our for our unity. This is the basis for our oneness. There's one Lord. At the same time, in a very real way, there's exclusivity here. There's exclusion here. Utterly incompatible with the idea that there would be any other gods. Because our God, our Lord, He is a jealous God. He is jealous over His people. So I suppose that I ask you the question, how much adultery should a holy and just and righteous and jealous God accept from his people? Just a tad bit. Just a smooch here or there. Just a night off every once in a while. Is that not how many live? The first century Roman Empire, they, they were not completely unlike the world in which we find ourselves living today. They would look to the people of God. They would look to the gathered church and they would say, fine, you can confess all that you want that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just make sure you add a little pinch of incense to Rome. You can confess Jesus Christ is Lord, but you also need to say, look, you don't have to mean it. It doesn't have to come from the heart. You can say Jesus Christ is Lord and mean that, but you also must say that Caesar is Lord. Just play the game. Why be so obstinate? Why won't you bow to the God of government? Why won't you bend the knee to the idol of democracy and the will of the people? Again, I take you back to Mount Sinai. The people are not always right. More often than not, the people are always wrong. Are we going to fear God? Or are we going to fear man? Are we going to obey God? Or are we going to obey man? Are we going to bow our knee to the one Lord or to the God of the people, the God of the government? Maybe it's not government that is this false God, this other Lord that claims this, makes these claims over us. What about the damnable Lord of Molech? The one to whom people offer their children. No, we don't throw our babies off of a cliff. We, we hand our babies over to the God of abortion, to the God of perceived freedom. We hand our babies over to the God of recreation or sport. We hand our babies over to the God of popularity. We hand our babies over to the God of higher education. We hand our babies over to all these false lords. Instead of the one singular Lord. Maybe it's not the God of Molech. Maybe it's the alluring Lord of Mammon. The Lord of money. The promise of riches and comfort and peace. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the God, the Lord of illicit sex and of sensuality like Baal and the Asherah. Don't you see? We are, we are masters. The heart is an idol-making factory. The devil will take any one of these good gifts from God. Sports, a gift from God. 
Money, a gift from God. Recreation, a gift from God. Physical intimacy, a gift from God. Satan will take any one of these and tempt you to make it into your Lord. When there's only one Lord. And so we've got to take great care. That we are not committing adultery against this one Lord. Constantly creating false gods that demand our worship and our obedience. Knowing that we can't blame it all on, on Satan himself. It's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind and our own heart that pulls us this direction. Because the weight of this one Lord, the gravity of this one Lord. The, the tension that we feel between this one Lord and our flesh, it becomes too great. And we think we can just go and find a release valve over here somewhere. Just dabble a bit with the world. He says, no, there is one Lord. And we must be the people in all the earth. We must be the people who are willing to stand and say, I didn't ask you your thoughts on the matter. I didn't take a vote. There wasn't an election. We stand before you today to claim there is one Lord. He is our Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for our one Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would increasingly make us a people who live in obedience and honor towards him. We pray that you would help us to find joy in this. We're not a people who are meant to bow begrudgingly or hesitantly. We're not a people that are just meaning to tap out, but rather, Father, people who find joy and hope and promise and eternal life in this one Lord. So, Father, I pray that you help us to be a single-minded people under one head, charging hard after this one Lord. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.